Good evening, everyone. I'm Kieran, um, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, thanks, Bridget, for, um, for asking me to <coughs> speak here this evening. Um, trying to keep it somewhat brief <coughs> to, to about oh, half an hour, I suppose. Um, for a second there, I had to do a double take and wonder what was actually me you were talking about. Um, lovely guy, this, that, and that. Was a, for a long time, I didn't believe that. Um, my surprise date is that 15th of January 2015. Um, so, so yeah, there's about a half an hour in it, really. Um, so I'm, I'm a relative, yeah, relative late starter. Um, like I said, I'm a recovering alcoholic. Um, up until COVID kind of kicked off, I was just an alcoholic. Um, but I think this last year and a half has been, that has ups and downs. Um, but I've actually found it's been really, really beneficial. Um, not, not just because um, it kind of forced everybody to go on Zoom, um, but I'm kind of, I suppose I'm more connected. Um, I'm more connected and more kind of tapped into AA um, and fellowship and other people than I ever was, um, in spite of everything. Um, so I suppose the start of the start, what it was like, what happened to what it's like now. Um, I grew up in a reasonably traditional Irish household. Um, there's no, so there's no, no alcoholism in the house. Um, but I grew up as a, as a young kid. I was anxious, separate, different, and alone. I felt that way. Um, that doesn't mean that that loneliness was the case, but that's how I felt. Um, and as the years went on as a, as a kid, um, I didn't really know what I was missing um, because I suppose you never miss what isn't there. Um, years later, um, after drinking on it um, for quite a long time, um, coming into recovery, it's clear to me now that what was missing really was um, I suppose emotional Um, so I grew up in the house for people, you know, just for, for you know, they didn't write or anything, you know. Um, and yeah, I would have suffered, like, suffered for what I last growing up, but I didn't realize it. Um, so I grew up, I was a very, very anxious kid. Um, I found it difficult to, to fit in, to make friends. I had friends, but I just didn't realize I'd made them. Um, I always, for whatever reason, felt somewhat on the back foot. I never really knew why, but it was as if always it was something, something that I couldn't bring to the table. Um, and I know today that a lot of that really was very high expectations that I placed on myself because I didn't really know any different. Um, so fast forward a bit, I suppose, to my teenage years, I went from primary school into secondary school, and that was a mixed school. Wow, it was girls. That frightened the producers out of me. Um, and I was always good at school. I didn't seem to have any trouble with it. But the constant, the persistent um, conversation, if you will, I was always in trouble, but I was always good at school. And the 
persistent, nagging kind of uh, rhetoric was, uh, you're a grand young fellow. You've brains to burn, but. And that, I suppose, was a kind of a, a slow burning, long kind of trauma um, from my childhood right up to my, my the time I left school. It was always somebody else's but. You know, there was always a but. There was something wrong, but no one ever told me what it was. Um, so after that continued for, you know, without kind of, uh, I suppose without something else to validate it. Um, I eventually kind of learned to just accept that and go like, yeah, there must be something amiss. There must be something wrong. I mean, they're all saying it, you know, the teachers and so on. Um, but really, I was a very sensitive kid and a very sensitive teenager. Um, and that kind of self-criticism, long before I ever picked up a drink, that self-critic was there. And that self-critic really just told, I told myself, I taught myself really that I needed to improve, I needed to do better, but I never actually knew why. You know, and no one ever told me why either. So it's not, it's not to point a finger of blame at anyone or anything in particular. But I can understand now where my kind of thought, my thinking didn't serve me well. I had no control over it or understanding at the time, but it didn't serve me well. Um, I think it was around 15 or 14 or 15, I think I had my first drink with another guy just on a, there was nothing remarkable about it. My drinking story isn't even remarkable. Um, I think it was a flag in the cider. Um, I don't know what, whatever was cheap. Um, and I can still remember actually the drink at the end of that flag and sharing it with another guy. And uh, the end of it smelled a bit like, smelled a bit like cider. When you squeeze the bottle, there was this whiff came out of it. There was nothing appetizing about it. There was nothing appealing. It smelled like silage's fermented grass that farmers in Ireland. They store in sheds and then, you know, they, they stick it in giant plastic bales. They ferment over a few months and then they break it open and winter to feed the cattle and it stinks. And uh, that's exactly what the two litre of uh, two litre flag of the cider uh, smelled like. But there really wasn't that in the peeling about it. I can remember drinking that with another guy. He was somewhat seasoned. He seemed to know what he was doing. Um, so I drank half it, he drank half it. And I always remember, this is a kind of a testament, I suppose, to where my head was at. I really didn't realise I was actually drunk for about an hour, an hour and a half later. You know, it kind of, I was, I didn't know what to expect. Um, and then it kind of hit me, it dawned on me, walking down the street, I was feeling lightheaded, um, and kind of warm. And then the penny kind of dropped. It was, oh, well, this is what being drunk or tipsy. This is what that feels like. Um, but I suppose the salient point with that is, I didn't know what to expect. So I didn't know what it would feel like. And then when I was feeling it, I didn't notice it for about an hour, an hour and a half later until it kind of dawned on me. Um, I always thought that was a bit strange. Because I, I I got to know it and I got to expect it very very quickly after that, um, but I just find it odd that I didn't notice for some time. Um, 
and that's most likely because my head and my thoughts was I was always wrapped up in my own thoughts and thinking, you know, and um, I'd be motion, I'd be quite motionless to the outside, I wouldn't give away a thing. Um, but my mind was always racing, you know, and um, I had a kind of a brain as a teenager that was always prepared for threat, danger. Um, I was always on the lookout for, you know, what's coming next. Um, just, just the anxiety, you know. Um, so gradually, I didn't, I didn't take to it like a duck to water. I didn't have the money for it. I was still maintaining um, an air of togetherness and still maintaining, I suppose, striving to meet the expectations that I felt other people had of so my parents, the teachers, and so on and so forth. So for the rest of my teenage years, really, I ended up leaving school early because I couldn't hack it. It wasn't the academics. I just couldn't. I got to a point where I was feeling very, very um, numbed out in myself. There was a, a number of things happened that aren't in themselves traumatic, but to somebody who was very, very poorly equipped to deal with the, I suppose, the emotional challenges of being a, a teenager, um, and all the all the changes to go with that. Um, gradually, over time, I found the best way to, the best way for me to be safe in that environment was to just numb out, you know, never express any emotion, never say or do anything that might give anyone else a hint as to what was going on underneath. Um, and that to me was kind of safe. You know, I couldn't be hurt. So long as I didn't put my head above the parapet, so long as I didn't take a risk or take a chance in exposing who I was or how I felt or um, how I might feel about somebody else, um, I couldn't be hurt. Um, and the damage was, the damage really, I suppose, was, was done there. I did it to myself to a large extent. Um, I couldn't, I did not have the capacity to reach out. I could not talk to anybody. I couldn't share with anybody how I was doing, how I was feeling. So I kind of just learned that that was a safe, uh, protective kind of a mechanism. But that was really hard to live with. Because when you don't let somebody know, anyone, how you are, how you're really feeling, that builds up. It just builds up and it builds up and it builds up like a pressure cooker. And there's no outlet. Um, so that, those feelings of inadequacy and, and fear, you know, there's, there's a little book that talks about it, like a thousand, a hundred forms of fear. And actually, there's there's a Joe and Charlie tip that I listen to, but there's a particular bit in it that I found very helpful to the start. And they're going through the, the book and so on and so forth, and then they break down this business of fear. And then, um, if anyone's familiar with the Joe and Charlie tapes, it's like two old, I think, Mississippi guys, like, um, and they're, they're really enthusiastic about the book. But they take this notion of fear and they say, well, Charlie, you know, really, it's, it's really quite simple. All of, all of our, um, a lot of our insanity kind of arises from fear. And uh, they said, well, 
the first one is I'm going to, I'm, going, I'm not going to get what I want. And so the first one, yeah, is I'm not going to get what I want. And the second one was I'm going to lose what I have. And the third one is I'm going to be found out. And I can remember hearing that a couple of years back and thinking to myself, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be found out. That was really the one that, that was really the one that came before everything else, that I would be found out. God knows what was going to be found out about me. Um, but it was that fear, that insecurity, that sense that if anybody finds out who I am, I'm goosed. Um, and that became an ever type So the more I wouldn't put myself out there, the worse that got. So what I'm trying to kind of get around to is explaining the reason why I drank. And that's for me. That's for me to understand why it is exactly I drank. And really, I drank because it was a painkiller and it helped to suppress those, those, feelings, those awful feelings I had about myself. Um, that fear that somebody would find out something terrible about me. Um, and the feelings that, you know, if I was ever exposed, if anyone ever saw kind of deep into the heart of me uh, and realised who I was, that that was it, I was game over. Um, so fast forward, I left school um, and I went and I did, uh, I did an apprenticeship. I became a carpenter. And that actually was one, one of the more enjoyable periods of my life, looking back on it. Um, I got to do something physical. And I got to work with guys who were like much older than me, but they kind of they gave me a, a different education. It's uh, a school of life. Um, they didn't take any, any crap, but they kind of aired it, roughed me up and toughened me up a little bit. But all throughout that, I found that the only way that I could... give myself some kind of pain relief um, just in dealing with life was, was the drink. So I know we don't, we don't compare um, find similarities. And where I find similarity with other alcoholics is that, that precisely that. Why did you drink? And I drank the effect. I didn't drink to get, you know, loaded and fall around the streets and pick fights. I didn't drink to, you know, chase women, to be the life and soul of the party. I wasn't the life and soul of anything. Um, in fact, I, you know, without a drink, I'd suck the soul out of anything. Um, so I found that having a drink took away some of those feelings of inadequacy up to a manageable point. It actually brought me to a level where I could function. Um, and when I say function, I mean just to be able to kind of tread water, you know. So my problem really was life. I had a life problem and I used alcohol to medicate that life problem. Um, and gradually, 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 I became more dependent on alcohol um, <clears throat> because it was my, it was my go-to. It was my friend and it was uh, a panacea. It would be. You know, it's that thing that I could always go to in a jam and it did the job. It did exactly what it was supposed to do. 
it removes it removes pain and it's healthy function. Um, the years went on, and I got you know I got a bit better in myself, and strength was always there. I never I made a a really concerted effort not to stick out. So you know I would be well, I, I would like hanging around and kind of oh, spitting sawdust bars, um, festivals. Um, weekends away, you know, where people were hard drinking hard liquor, taking drugs and so on. But I'd never be the guy that stuck out as the real kind of um, diehard. I'd make sure of that. So I thought I was really smart. As long as I wasn't as bad as that guy or that girl or wasn't being picked up by the cops, well, I was okay. But years later, I... I can see now looking back in the gun, but who thinks like that only an alcoholic? Um, so I was able to deceive myself for a very long time. Um, but in the back of my mind, I always knew there was there was something there was something kind of lurking, a certain reticence, certain shame around it, and uh, the fact that I had to kind of cover up how much I drank and the manner in which I drank it. Um, that uh, that didn't sit well with me. So really, when they say get honest, you know, that bit in chapter five, honesty is mentioned like three, four times, even in the first paragraph, like that really struck me because getting honest and being honest really meant being honest with myself. Um, and that was a really, really difficult thing to do. Why do he progress year after year for about 20, 20 or so years? Um, and it just got more frequent. It became more intensive and it became more sustained. Um, but it was a real slow burner. It really was. <clears throat> so all the time I managed to keep the, the illusion, really, of, of being together. Um, I finished out my apprenticeship. I, then I went back to college at 24. Um, I, I don't know, that was motivated by... a. A feeling of always kind of being a few steps behind somebody, other people, and um, that was beneficial because it helped me to finally realise that I was no different from anybody else. Why did I still feel like a piece of shit on somebody else's shoe? If nobody ever made me feel that way, I felt it. Um, there was always a kind of an emptiness. There was always some kind of a void that just needed filling. And the only way that I could get rid of that feeling was to drink on it. And that was a temporary solution, but it did fill that hole. Um, but that was the only solution I ever had. Um, in 2011, um, after 10 years of going out with my, uh, my girlfriend, I got married. And we had two kids. About three and a half years later, um, that lady gave me an ultimatum. She said, look, you need to do something about your drinking or we're out of here. And I have to say, with all honesty, at that stage, I was kind of done. I just, I knew I couldn't keep going with this. I'd started really, really hating myself. Um, I had suicidal ideation. I just really, I was a wretched individual. I just had this depressive blackness about me um, and I knew I couldn't continue but I was still the same guy that I was 20 years earlier that would not talk about what was going on 
what the problem was, I would not own up to anything or take responsibility for any of my own problems. So in giving me that ultimatum, um, my wife really, she kind of saved my bacon because I, I was ready for, I was ready to do something. I just needed somebody to tell me. Um, I needed someone to kind of signal that the game was up. Um, so I went into a treatment centre in 2015. <clears throat> I remember going up the driveway to a treatment centre and it was January. There, was, there, wasn't, there wasn't a leaf on the trees. There was a whole bunch of jackdaws and rooks. They're like ominous, sinister looking blackbirds. They were all nesting in the trees. And uh, you could hear them kind of cawing. I, I, I thought they were laughing at me. <laughs> and they got up and it, it was just, it was like something from a tombstone. You know, all I was missing was the, uh, the funeral bell. <clears throat> and I didn't realise it then. But I do now. And what, it was, what really happened to me when I stepped over the, the threshold of a treatment centre was inside I was full of shame and fear. And... No small amount of ego and pride, because I remember I had, um, on the outside, I had everything kind of, it looked like I had everything going for me, but it wasn't good enough, you know. Everything, I looked together and I looked, it appeared that um, everything was okay, except for a small little bit of a drink problem. But that really wasn't the truth. The truth was, I'd never felt... I'd, I'd spent 20 years getting to this point. I really was lower. I felt lower than a snake's belly. Um, and when I stepped over the threshold of that treatment centre, I was going through my head was, is this what it's come to? Really? Is this what it's come to? Um, and that, for someone with my ego and my marvellously unrealistic um, expectations, that was a rock bottom, you know. I didn't, I didn't need to be suffering from the DTs and, and, you know, arrested several times or so on. Like that, that really was ego crushing. Um, so that very act of going in the door of a treatment centre, I realised now it was actually an act of surrender for me. I just surrendered to it. Um, what do I mean by surrender? It wasn't anything that I did do. I didn't kind of wave a white flag. You know, I didn't sign a peace treaty or anything like that. I simply, um, I simply stopped doing everything else. I just stopped. Um, I stopped blaming. I stopped arguing. I stopped playing the victim. Um, and what was left really was a surrender. Um, so my eyes and ears were open, really. Um, for the first time ever, I was actually willing to learn and listen. Um, I was willing to listen to learn and learn to listen, really. Um, and it took about a fortnight before they bring these AA meetings into, into treatment centres. Um, <clears throat> I'd never experienced an anthem like it before in my life. I had a, I had an ex kind of a false expectation, really. Um, stuff I'd seen in films and TVs, you know, a bunch of touchy feely type sitting around in a circle, you know. Um, you know, it was all very kind of, yeah, I had a bad attitude towards it. But that wasn't my experience at all. Uh, but a fortnight in, uh, three guys came down, 
the men from AA, like the guy from Del Monte and a, a lad, see guys, well dressed. And um, they came down and held a meeting. And, um, must have been 20 of us in the room, I think. And something about that, something took place at that very first meeting where something changed to me. There was something about the setup. There was something about the whole, the whole thing I could tell. Something about this should not work. This, this business of people coming in and telling their story and there's no user fees, there's no management, there's no one in charge. Um, you know, the, the whole thing just, it read wrong, but yet here it was, and I couldn't explain it. Um, we had this guy coming down telling the story with the clearest whites of his eyes that I'd noticed in any human being up to then. <laughs> um, but he told his story. The guy sitting in front of me didn't look anything like the person he was describing from his past. The picture just didn't match the sound. You know, here was this guy telling a story about the awful shit he'd done, how he felt, how we gotten through it. And I couldn't believe that another human being would actually expose themselves in that manner that would actually be that vulnerable or willing to be that vulnerable in front of a group of people. But he was somehow telling my story. It wasn't the same, but he was, he was saying to us how I felt at the time. And there was something very profound about that. Um, Looking back, uh, it's like something, something changed. Something changed um, for me at that very first meeting. Gave me hope, and it was uh, towards the end of the meeting. The you know they closed kind of in the usual way, and you know if if you want what we have and to keep keep what I have, I have to give it away. There's a few of those kind of what have what have come to be nearly slogans at this stage, and in each one just kind of reaffirmed my my sense that I'd found something. I'd found something that felt more home to me with a group of strangers than I suppose my home ever did. Um, and that's, that night after that meeting, I went back up to my, my, my dorm, um, <clears throat> to my wretched little bed in the treatment centre, and um, I just buried my face in the pillow, and I suppose I... I cried out about 20 years worth of, worth of tears and um, I left an awful lot of that stuff out um, because something told me that you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay and you're not the world's worst. You know? um, far from it. And there are other people just like you. Um, and from then on, that, that kind of spurred on, spurred on my, um, that gave me some sense of hope for myself <clears throat> from that night and I liken it sometimes to like a pilot light uh, you know you got these little pilot lights in a like a boiler or one of those gas burning appliances it keeps the flame really really low so that when you when you turn it on it, it's ready to go um, and my pilot light it, it had gone out it has nearly gone out you know that kind of that hole or that void was so kind of black and empty but um, it, it didn't feel like there was any light in it. Um, but that first day meeting where I just, I encountered 
for I suppose the first time in my life, I was open to it, but I encountered kind of humanity and compassion. Um, for the first time that I noticed, I allowed it in. Um, that pilot light, it just, it started to flicker and it started to get a bit stronger. Um, and it's really, that's been getting a lot stronger ever since. Um, so to the point where, I suppose if we fast forward again to, to today, um, yeah, I'm good. I'm good through a rough, rough enough time today. Um, and COVID, I started off talking about COVID. That that's been been quite challenging. Um, but it's been it's been of immense um, benefit to me to be able to, re- to be able to reach out, um, come across these uh, these just new meetings, and to be able to, to be able to connect with people who are who are just about as bloody normal as I can. Um, as I can identify this, you know, this has become a, I suppose, a new normal for me. Um, recovery has become a new normal. Um, because there was nothing, there was nothing normal about my, my life in the past, you know, nor the way that I drank on it. Um, so today, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, my family situation isn't great, but it's okay. Um, I've encountered an awful lot of challenges in the last three to four months. But 10, 10 years prior, there was no way that I could have dealt with them. Um, today, I'm just I'm able to deal with them. I surprise myself that I'm able to deal with them one problem, one day at a time, and not worry too much about what's coming the next day. Um, today, I have a life, I have a life worth living. Um, I did not have a life worth living in the past. It was it just felt so bad. I had to I had to medicate it. I had to, I had no other choice. Um, that was alcohol was my solution. Um, today it's no longer my solution. I no longer have a drink problem. But I have a life problem, but it's a very manageable problem. Um, but I can't manage that on my own. And it's only manageable because of what I pick up and what I learned from the rooms and watching other people struggle and also learn how to live, demonstrate how to live life. Um, that's been um, that's been my education, really. Um, so I think I'll wrap it up on that. Um, Bridget, that's all right. Um, thank you so much for the opportunity to share with you. Um, I look forward to hearing, hearing everyone else. Thank you so much.